Art on the Podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Go With Yamo. Go With Yamo is an art exhibition app which helps you to find the exhibitions, art fairs and art events happening all around you. The app displays exhibitions based on your location. So the one closest to you will be at the top of the list. But if you're planning a trip, you can, of course, change your location to a different city. What makes the app really fun is that when you are at an exhibition, you can check in and earn points, which can then be used to redeem prizes from the in-app store, such as prints, exhibition tickets, books and more. Go With Yamo also create custom virtual exhibitions for galleries and artists. They recently created the virtual space for the Art on a Postcard Winter Auction, which is definitely worth checking out if you haven't done so already. You can find all of these on their website, along with some great blog content, including artist interviews, exhibition recommendations, quizzes and reviews. The Art app is free to download from the App Store and the Google Play Store, so make sure you check it out and visit their website, www.gowithyamo.com. That's G-O-W-I-T-H-Y-A-M-O. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome back to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. We've had great feedback about our last episode where I spoke to Jane and Julia from the Hep C Trust about the work that they're doing in women's prisons, which is of course the cause to which all the proceeds of our upcoming International Women's Day auction will go. In today's episode, I chat with Ayabola Kekarere Akun, who is participating in the auction with some beautiful work sent all the way from Nigeria, where she lives and works. In the episode, we chat about Ayabola's practice and how she explores themes of gender, power and the human condition through distinctive aesthetics and mediums. Um, Her being all the way in Nigeria and this being conducted over Zoom means that at some point in this interview, um, more than has happened in the past, um, the sound kind of drops in and out. Um, but I have amended it as best I can so um, that it doesn't affect the listening experience for you too much. Okay, so Ayabola is a contemporary visual artist. She was born in Lagos, Nigeria. Her BA and MA in visual arts were received from the Department of Creative Arts at the University of Lagos, where she majored in graphic design. She's currently pursuing a PhD in art and design at the University of Johannesburg, South Africa. Ibola is also a lecturer at the Department of Creative Arts, University of Lagos. Ibola's work often explores subjects connected to gender, mythology, power and the human condition in a multi-layered way, creating work through a labour-intensive process. Ibola works predominantly with a technique known as quilling, in which strips of paper are individually shaped to create forms. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi. Hello, how are you? All right, thank you. Good, good. It's nice to meet you. What time is it? It is 4.08 p.m. Yeah, I think we're about an hour or so ahead, or two hours. Okay, it's not too bad. Ahead of the UK. Yeah, it's not too bad. 
could be much worse. And how are things over there, you know, coronavirus-wise? Oh, yeah, we're back on lockdown. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's a bit of a shit show, pardon my French. Yeah, Um. (laughs) it's the exact same scenario here, you know, we've completely locked down as well, so. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny, like, the the government is really, like, dancing around, because we have our lockdowning level, so it's level one to five. So we were on level one, and then they threw us back to level three. And they're hesitant to like call any level higher than three. They just keep like adding things and saying it's a level three amended. Like we won't notice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we won't notice. I know it's crazy. Do you think how have you been finding? It? Are you still able to sort of be creative and everything? Even with a lockdown? Or is it- I mean, with the second one, it's easier um, because I moved into a new flat um, during that window where we were on level two and level one. I moved into a new flat with my best friend. So not being alone definitely helps because I was alone for the first lockdown and it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> There's a big difference between being alone by choice and... <laughs> having no choice but to be alone I mean the first lockdown there were only three of us there were only three people left in my building Mm. and at some point I would get really excited when I saw someone else's laundry or someone else's trash because it was proof that there was someone else out there so it was really really lonely and really difficult Mm -hmm. so I'd much prefer second lockdown yeah I think we were all a little bit more used to it as well that we kind of were like oh yeah this old thing you know whereas the first time I definitely felt well in my mind anyway like a kind of like a sci-fi or something (laughs) like it It was so dystopian yeah it was really weird but yeah I think we we are kind of adjusting to the creepiness of it I mean (laughs) I found myself having to learn so many things now I'm like an old hand at having my groceries delivered (laughs) Uh-huh. you know and you know just really silly things like that so it's not a great way to live but it's a bit more familiar now yeah exactly and so are you studying your PhD yes I'm studying for my PhD don't do it I wouldn't recommend <laughs> just kidding <laughs> you know I have been considering it like for my place to do one as well because me and you I was looking up today we we're born in the same year 1993 really? so what month are you February oh, oh you're a bit older hello older sister how are you <laughs> um yeah. so tell me how that how has it been are you able to get into university um and also what um, so my PhD is in art and design um my research is exploring place branding in Lagos um in my academic life I'm more of a designer yeah and when I started when I did my first postgrad when I did my master's I was very deliberate about separating separating my practice from my academic life um and I decided to do that again with my PhD because I was just really really scared that the frustrations with one will start to seep into the other and then it will just ruin everything for me which now with the benefit of hindsight was definitely the right move, 100%. Um, And so my research is um, exploring how 
in the last decade, the Lagos state government has been more deliberate about how they present themselves visually um, and how they have co-opted certain cultural or architectural monuments as visual signifiers of the state. Um, but I'm arguing that the use of these visual signifiers is complicated by the problematic histories they carry. You know, it's like using this famous landmark as a symbol of like a super progressive, inclusive, modern state when the symbol is actually has a dodgy problematic history linked to classism and patriarchy and you know there's just this ironic tension in there um, that I think is worth exploring um, and that is what I have been studying for the past three years this is my fourth and hopefully last year I'm ready to finish <laughs> I have nothing left to give is it as intense as people say it is I don't think anything really prepares you for it. I mean, you do a master's and you think, oh yeah, it's like just like a harder master's, but it it it, it is a different beast. Um, but one thing I have learned is whatever nonsense you have going on that you have not resolved will bubble up to the surface because the PhD is like a pressure cooker situation. And so whatever impurities, whatever bullshit you're dealing with that you have refused to look in the eye and just sort out, it will rock up to the surface and it will fetch you. <laughs> um, so it's really important to go in with a support system and accept that the PhD is not going to be the epitome of your life's work. It's a piece of academic writing. Enjoy it, but finish it and move on. <laughs> that's really good advice um i'll probably be listening to this podcast back when i'm doing my phd and taking it if you do enroll you know how to find me i'm happy to give you all the misery mitigating tips <laughs> oh, amazing. i would love that um so your phd subject itself sounds super interesting and i guess you know talking about the aesthetics of um of government the way the government uses aesthetics um without sort of being critical about what those aesthetics um to or are linked to exactly um, interesting because you know even here in the uk over the summer we had a lot of black lives matter protests where they would pull down statues for instance that have mm. been there in our kind of public spheres our public spaces forever as a kind of you know celebrated part of british culture like look at this kind of you know, <laughs> nice man in a suit stood on this st st on the stone and suddenly I think a lot of people are sort of waking up to go who is that man oh my god he was a you know evil colonizer like why mm -hmm, a slave trader <laughs> why are we celebrating that person in our public sphere so it sounds like a really sort of timely piece that you're that you're writing um globally as well as you know in Nigeria yeah, because there's always, I find that there's often universality and specificity. Um, we tend to have, our problems tend to, if they don't live in the same house, they're not on the same street. If not the same street, the same block. If not the same block, the same estate. You know, they're, they're always like connecting threads um, between the issues we face. Um, and so, you know, I've looked at your work and I know that um, you said that you're exploring femininity specifically going back to the specifics Nigerian femininity 
but I guess within that, there's going to be, you know, even more kind of nuance and specificity. Um, to you, how do you go about expressing that in its universality and also its specificity of a Nigerian femininity? I mean, yeah, I guess pointing out the specificity is important because even though I am Nigerian, um, my my expression is obviously filtered through my identity as a Yoruba woman, you know, a Yoruba Nigerian from Lagos, you know, who was raised Muslim in a Muslim family. You know, these, the, those little variables tend to impact how things are processed. But nevertheless, I find, I find myself drawn to how performative femininity and womanhood is literally and figuratively you know I think of it as it's a bit like a dance isn't it where (laughs) you you kind of see what's going on on stage but then as a woman you have that dual privilege slash curse of knowing, oh, that dancer in the back row actually has like a blister on her foot, but she's smiling through the pain. Or all the costumes were lit on fire an hour ago backstage, but we figured it out. You know, there's just this weird duality between the pretty picture that we see on the surface and the reality of what's going on underneath it, you know? I mean, even, even things that are supposed to be like inspiring are beautiful, you know, about being a woman just strike me as scary. Like I remember I read this post from this dude, I don't know what country he was from, but he was like extolling his mother's virtues, you know, how she gave up everything for them and she held everyone down. And I, I remember thinking, so your mom wakes up at 5 a.m. every day to hold everyone down and it doesn't occur to you to, I don't know, maybe help her, you know, something. I think there's just this, and I, I was so shocked by the comments, everyone going, oh, is that, that's amazing, that's so beautiful. I'm like, can you guys not see how your idea in beauty is rooted in service to you, service you agree with, you know, I, I think, I find that duality interesting because when you acknowledge it's there, then you start to question, you start to question the pretty surface, as I like to call it, the pretty picture, the first thing you see, you know, I don't know if that makes any sense. It does, especially when I'm thinking about your artwork as well, because you certainly have these very sort of beautiful looking images. The more you look, the more you see this kind of, a lot of it is quite surreal, you know, you have one uh, kind of, I don't want to say trademark because it sounds commercial, but one sort of (laughs) motif that I would see a lot throughout your work would be the big eyes, for instance. And, you know, these characters that sometimes are emerging through um, maybe it's leaves or, you know, there's always something kind of hidden beneath the surface of your paintings, but at the same time on the surface as well, because it's a painting. So, yeah, I just wanted to ask you about that, the medium that you often would use of the paper quilling. and why that medium, how do you, how do you do it? <laughs> I, <don't... laughs> I mean, I love paper. I genuinely love the material. I, 
I always call people like the ideal conceptual Trojan horse because mm-hmm. it's infiltrated all our lives. You know, it's just, it's always there, like in the background of your life. You, you don't really think about it. It's just there. Um, and in using paper the way I do, I think it forces people to just reconsider, reconsider what they think they know about the material and what it's capable of and what it can do and what its value is. And that becomes an extension for people to reconsider other things. You know, it's about questioning and just sort of subverting expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just really enjoy working with it that way. It really is, it's, I, I think it's a genuinely beautiful material. Um, and in working with it the way I do via quilling, I started quilling by accident. Um, I didn't. I didn't even know what quilling was when I started. Um, but after a year of doing it, I was like, so surely someone has figured this out. I mean, there's really nothing new under the sun. Um, and a bit of research led me to understand that, okay, this was the thing and it's called quilling. And how, you know, how it's this really old sort of craft technique and it has some Egyptian origins, but it became popular. Um, in old English society for like ladies of leisure. And I remember giggling a bit like, I'm certainly not a lady of leisure. <laughs> I'm certainly not an English lady of leisure. And I, that's probably something interesting to be read into that, but yeah, I'm not a critic, it's not my job. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just, I just really enjoy the material. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's beautiful and the outcome is just absolutely stunning. Um, Thank you. And it, Go back into, you know, I, I, I asked about the motif of the, you know, you'd have those big circular eyes. There definitely is. I mean, there's a, there's a Yoruba saying, um, um, and it literally means like the conversation to be had, it takes place on the face or the eyes, because Odru means the same thing. Like it could be referred to eyes or face. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that very interesting because you really can tell what is going on from a person's face and especially their eyes. Every action or inaction carries its own weight. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said for making eye contact or not making eye contact or the inability to make sustained eye contact. And you know, when you filter that through like cultural conditioning that also carries its own weight for example I I have I can count the number of times I've ever made eye contact with my father because it's considered disrespectful and I don't think of myself as a particularly traditional person but one day I just sat down like I have never made sustained eye contact I looked him in the face but I've never made eye contact for like a while with my dad I'm like huh that's weird I'm not scared of my dad I love him he's a teddy bear why (laughs) Why is that, you know? So there's a lot to be said about how people engage with each other just from the eyes alone. And so eyes are definitely, definitely a big part of my work. You know, these huge unblinking, aware, you know, sort of eyes. And I find that in some of my recent work, I've started to mess with the eyes, you know, I blind them or you know, they're mutilated in some way. Instead of two eyes, there's one. Um, and I often, I realize I do that as a, 
when they cry for help, but they cry for help. It's like an indication that there's a problem um, and things are not what they should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. gosh, I should write that down. I just realized that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's being recorded, so you know you you, you can take notes. Of it from I will refer back to this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you know that's so interesting. This idea that with your explorations of femininity within your work, using this this idea of the eyes, the gaze, as a way of the subject of the works almost confronting or challenging the respect of, or, you know, the viewer. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, because obviously you're participating in our international Women's Day auction, which is just perfect. And we're really, really so grateful to have you on board. Thank you so much. Um, it's my pleasure. For to take part. Um, we're really excited to have you. Um, I was just wondering if you could explain to the listeners a little bit about the works that you have sent to us that you're um, that you've done for Art on a Postcard, the upcoming auction. Um, so I've sent in two pieces, um, and after a lot of back and forth, I it took some time to decide what to send in because I couldn't send in my work in its traditional format. Um, It just, it wouldn't fit the size. It wouldn't fit like just the logistical consideration of, you know, what Art on a Postcard is about. And so I decided to send in two sketches of pieces I'll be making later this year, which was huge for me because I never share my sketches um ever like ever ever it's actually it feel it felt really vulnerable and just a bit scary and so i i sent in sketches for two pieces that will actually be showing in the uk at different points later this year oddly enough now that i think about it um and one piece is from the crown series and then the other is from she and i um a new body of work um i started last year and the first one, the piece from The Crown, sort of, it leans more into my explorations of the baggage and the performative nature of femininity. Um, you know, you have these portraits of women wearing these elaborate, ridiculously elaborate crowns. And the body of work started when I read this ridiculous op-ed that was titled, Do We Still Need Feminism? Oh my God, just thinking about it makes me mad all over again. You know, and I realized it's just this budding perspective, like, oh, women can vote now, you can go to school, you can own property. What do you still want? I'm like, first things first, depends on where you are. There's still many places in the world where women cannot own property or do not get to go to school. Um, and even if that were the case, it's ridiculous how people point to I call them token mascots, like, oh, so, so, so is the richest woman in Africa. So women in Africa must be fine. For every so, 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 there are literally millions of other women who still have to face systemic prejudice. So it's almost like people want to give themselves pats on the back for their progress. Like, oh, we've done great. Here, you have a crown, what more do you want? But it's more like a burden. It looks pretty, but you can't really function with it on, can you? I mean. allowed doesn't mean it's feasible you know like just because like it's not arrestable but exactly it's like, you know, doesn't exactly mean that the option 
are realistically actually socially there for you to exactly exists exists you know um, and that's sort of what that body of work is exploring. Um, and the newer body of work is a lot more personal. Um, and it's from a series exploring how I don't actually have a lot of my childhood memories due to a bit of a little sprinkling of childhood trauma. And I've spent the last couple of years in therapy trying to like confront my nonsense and just try to remember or not remember as the case may be. And that's sort of what that body of work is exploring. But, you know, it really just all feeds back to the burdens we carry as women. You know, the flavor just changes from person to person or situation to situation. It's just the flavor that's different. We all have some bullshit, you know. And so it felt pretty apt um, as a contribution to this project. I'm so nervous for people to see my sketches. I mean, <laughs> but it's for a good cause. Absolutely. And I just feel, you know, to we're totally honoured to have this first bit of vulnerability, you know, sent from you, you know, um, direct. Oh, thank you. Your hands it's, it's really something special. And, you know, just hearing, you know, how vulnerable you've made yourself for us, like that's so touching that you've done that. And, um Thank you. I mean, I, I, if I had to do it for any reason, this is a pretty solid one too. So yeah, I think it's worth it. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, well, it's been lovely, lovely, lovely chatting chatting with you. Um, good you. luck with the final year of the PhD. You get it finished, you get it done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, and yeah, thank you so much for taking part and also for giving up time to chat with me today as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Art on a Podcast. To find out more about anything in today's episode, go to artonapostcard.com and be sure to follow us on all our social channels at Art on a Postcard. Goodbye!